for those of you who are new, um, that is a part of our practice. We really value being able to just connect with someone um, during our service. So we think that helps people to kind of be present to know at least one or two people who are here. And, um, and by the way, I meant to say to those of you who are on live stream, and I know there are many more of us who are um, coming in on live stream because of the storm, um, we have some people on our prayer team who are ready to pray for you. Any prayer requests that those of you who are watching, if you're watching live anyway, um, just put your prayer requests on the chat, and there are a couple people who are um, going to be serving this morning by praying for you. And then we'll also have prayer ministry in person um, later at the end of our service. So my name is Pastor Susan, and I'm so glad that everyone is here, and it's a privilege to get to worship God together. So yay. I want to begin by asking you a question, and that is, what is the saddest song you've ever heard? Think for a second. I'm not good at remembering songs, but can you think of it? Turn to one person. And, and share with them, what's like a sad song that you can think of? Something that's memorable, made an impact on you. All right, come back. I googled really sad songs, and here are some titles that came up. The first one is Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor. This is not in a particular order, but this is the list. So some of you may not know who these people are. Next one is Hurt by Johnny Cash. Driver's License by Olivia Rodrigo. Someone Like You by Adele. Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday. Yes. The River by Bruce Bruce Springsteen. Don't know if any of these are familiar to you. So I wanted to be sure that these songs were indeed sad songs. So I went and listened to them and watched the video. And I can really attest to you right now. You don't need to go. They're sad. Really sad songs. Powerfully sad. And it is said that every artist will eventually write or perform a really sad song. Because songs or music is such a powerful way to express and experience emotion. Am I right? Right. Wow. I didn't even know what these songs were about, but I went and listened to them, and I'm like, I feel really sad. (laughs) Amos, chapter 5, begins with a sad song. So this is what what Amos is doing. word used for it in the scripture is lament or lamentation. A lamentation is a song or a poem of deep, profound Sorrow, a song or a poem with deep, profound sorrow. This is not just a slight expression of sorrow. This is not, oh gosh, my kid's team lost their soccer game and then now they won't go to semifinals. Or this is not, oh, there's traffic on the one-on-one, now I'll be late to my thing. No, lament is something that's devastating, profound, profoundly sad catastrophic in its effects. Listen to the words of Amos 5, 1 through 3. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. 
deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. As you may know, we are in the midst of a sermon series on the book of Amos, and we're in the third um, sermon in this series right now, and um, I'm talking about Amos chapter 5 and 6. So chapter 5 begins with a loud voice that communicates a broken heart. Similar in the Gospels, when uh, in Luke 13, 34, when Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. So we see this lament, this lamentation in the life of ministry of Jesus. Well, Amos here in the Old Testament is speaking with a voice from God's broken heart. God is speaking judgment, but you'll notice in chapter 5 that it is not without hope. Because twice he says, seek me and live. And again, God seems to be begging his people, seek good and not evil. Hate evil and love good. Do you hear the yearning, the begging, the pleading from God's heart? But this begs the question, well, what exactly is Israel doing um, that breaks God's heart so much? What evil should they hate? Verse 10 says, there are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many offenses and how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So what is going on here in this section of Amos? Apparently, The people at this time, the people that God is speaking to through Amos, have created a system where the poor are being unfairly taxed while the rich are able to grow richer. There are bribes happening, unfair practices in the judicial system. Deception runs rampant to the detriment of those who have less power. And how does that sound to you? What? I said familiar. Familiar. Okay. Yeah, I think part of me is just reading this, and I'm like, oh, man, that's terrible. How could that society be like that? And yet, our society does that same thing, don't we? I'd like to talk as an illustration about the inmate phone system in U.S. jails and prisons. First of all, by way of context, the U.S. has the highest percentage of its population in prison. It has the highest incarceration number by far compared to any independent democracy in the world. It is one of the highest in the world of all nations. 
And the U.S. prison telecommunications system is a $1.2 billion industry, mostly, um, mostly controlled by two private equity-backed companies, private companies. And one of the reasons for the significantly higher telephone rate systems is that there's a practice in that prison operators, whoever's running prisons and jails in the United States, give exclusive contracts to these specific companies providing inmate calling services. And the prison operators, which are often for-profit companies, are paid by these telecommunication companies a high percentage of the fees that they collect for prisoners' calls. And then they charge the inmates for the service with extremely high markups. I've read uh, that it can be between 20 and 90% high markups. And usually, this is paid for by the usually low-income friends and family of incarcerated people. There's one woman who I read about in an article. Her name is Sean Barrera Leaf. And she said that she and her husband have spent over $14,000 in the past two years so that their son could make phone calls to them. They have stopped eating out and buying gifts for relatives' birthdays so that they can have enough money to simply talk to their son. Amos laments, you levy a tax on the poor. In our country, we could also talk about the check cashing industry, payday lending, predatory loans. This is what it looks like to levy a tax on the poor. And it is grievous to God. It's a part of what makes him sing this song of lament that we hear about in Amos. And Amos, the prophet of God, says to us, God sees these things. He cares about these things. He is not happy about these things. Now, I just have to say that as a normal person in this culture, it is so easy, so tempting for me to just shrug my shoulders and go, ah, it happens. What are you going to do? Right? Does anyone relate to that feeling of like, I don't know what to do about these things. But the first thing that I would say is that those of us who are following God, those of us who are seeking after Jesus, those of us who are pursuing being Christians, we first need to know how God feels about it. Right? We need to hear the voice of lament. Let ourselves hear, especially from the word of God, the voice of lament. Let me give you an illustration of what that might look like. Years ago, when I was in a different Christian community, and a fellow leader in that community was arrested because he was participating in some um, action behavior that was self-destructive and abusive of others. So he had been caught and so he came to us, um, shared what was going on, opened up what was going on in his life. A number of us were talking about it and praying about it and just trying to process, what are we going to do here? This guy needs help. And so we were talking and praying, and suddenly I had this urge to weep. 
And um, it was like, I don't think of myself as a more dramatic, weepy person. Um, but I just had this urge to cry really hard. So I started, found myself crying. And then I found myself laying on the floor, like weeping uncontrollably. And I had no idea what was going on. Another wise person who was at this meeting says to us, God is revealing his heart for you and for this situation. I wept for like 45 minutes. It was, I don't know how awkward it was for everyone. For me, I was like, ah. But I'll never forget that because it was like the window opened a little bit toward the heart of God. Um, A heart of grief and sorrow, lament and sadness. Now, I realize we can't live our lives like weeping on the floor at all times. You know, you can't really live life that way. But as we go on through a spiritual life, we do have to let ourselves hear, let ourselves see, let ourselves learn and be impacted by the heart of God in this way. Um, I remember that friend who had uh, confessed their sin That person was sorry, but they were more numb. And I understand that when you're going through things, it is easy to be numb. But God is not numb. I'll just say that again. God is not numb. God is aware. And if we follow God, it is good and right to not be numb, but to be aware And those are the first steps to opening ourselves up to the heart of God. So I think for us, part of that is stepping into being aware of the injustices and the systems that are displeasing to God that we live around, right? Uh, In our church, we have three community partners. Every two years, our compassion board selects two out of our 30, 20, uh, 21 Missions partners and says, these three we're going to really focus on. We're going to really love and serve, and we're really going to learn from. And I'm so pleased that our three community partners are wonderful opportunities for us to learn about the heart of God. Um, Hope Horizon, when we learn and su- when we support and learn about Hope Horizon, we learn about the socioeconomic dynamics at work in East Palo Alto, which is drastically affecting the lives of youth and underserved communities like East Palo Alto. There is so much to learn about East Palo Alto. So much. When we support and learn about Reach SV, we learn about the challenges that recent immigrants, the unhoused, the underhoused people face. Housing has a history in the Bay Area and especially in Silicon Valley. Am I right? And we don't have lots and lots of people living in vehicles all over the Silicon Valley for no reason. There are systems at work, systems that work for some and not for others. And at least one step as believers, as people seeking the heart of God, is to learn about what is going on. When we learn about the Buena Vista Mobile Home Park, if you carefully study the history of this place, you will learn about a community that has gone through so much so that the lowest-income people in this town, this city, can have a place to live 
with their families. It's actually really encouraging. God cares about these things. And when we come together and have a little bit of focus as a community, we can actually step away from being overwhelmed and care step by step, little by little, about the things that are in place in this world around us. To be a follower of God in the Silicon Valley means that we care. Now, I want to note that the scripture does not say completely fix these broken systems and live. It does not say feel really, really guilty and live. Or prove yourself to be one of the good guys, especially if you're a white person or a person of privilege, then you shall live. No. It says seek God and live. Seek the Lord and live. It's like God is saying, no, 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 look up here, look up here, see my heart, see my ways, see my work, and live. We have to hear that over and over again because we're like children, right? And we're tempted to look at like sadness, darkness, hopelessness, and feel like I'm dying. But God says, look at me, seek the Lord and live, and surely there is life in his face. Because none of us, no individual, no church, no community can fix injustice, can fix what is wrong about the Silicon Valley. But if we seek the Lord, he will invite us individually and collectively into what he is doing. And he is doing wonderful things. Without the willingness to care about what God cares about, we are tempted to fall into religious self-deception. Hear the word from Amos 5, 18 through 19. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. So Amos is talking to people who are like, oh, yay, the day of the Lord, a time of judgment, this time when God fully reveals himself. Yay, so excited, really looking forward to that. It'll be a a time of celebration and revelation, also judgment. And Amos is saying to them, Why are you saying yay? Do you even know what you're talking about? Why would you desire this day of the Lord? Do you think you are standing on the right side of God? Because it will be a day of darkness for you. A day of inescapable consequences. Because you are perpetuating unjust systems of oppression and you're choosing to be blind. And you're living in ways that displease the Lord and you don't care. Amos continues, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Whoa. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. 
But let's let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This scripture is saying all the feasts and the festivals and the religious things, the parties that you're throwing, they have no meaning unless your heart is right with God. I want you to imagine, if you will, a couple, a married couple, and they're going to throw an anniversary party for themselves because it's their 20th anniversary. So they've rented out a venue and they've invited their people and they're going to, they have entertainment and food. But everyone knows that this couple is doing horribly with each other. They're already seeing other people. They're headed toward divorce. How are you feeling if you're going to this anniversary party? You know that feeling of like, I don't feel good. Is this a joke? Why am I being made to do this? This would not be a good party. Because there's something rotten at the core of it. This is why God says, I see your through your religious feasts and festivals, and I hate it. There's, this is like a charade or a sham. God says, that makes me sick when you do religious things without having my heart be at the center. God is not impressed with mere religious actions. Here, he says, what I want, this is what I want. Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He says, I want justice and righteousness. And I love that there's this image of a river or a stream or something that flows. Because when you get to see justice and righteousness happen, you realize this is something that does flow. Sometimes it looks like a little stream, but it does flow and it moves forward and it has impact one on the next thing. An example of that is um, back to the uh, telecommunications for incarcerated people. In the past few years, 373 organizations urged the U.S. Senate to take on a bill called the Martha Wright Phone Justice Act. And this would ban from facilities like uh, facilities of incarceration from receiving compensation from communication providers that gives them um, the ability to uh, increase the cost of the phone system. So this legislation was named after a mother who had to choose between affording her own medication and calling her incarcerated son. And this bill, because many people worked on this together on multiple sides of the aisle, was signed into law just a year ago, in January of 2023, and now families are paying much, much less to talk to their incarcerated loved ones. And studies have found that visitation by and regular phone calls to family members has a huge impact on people who are incarcerated, on their well-being, their physical health. It decreases the likelihood that they'll break rules while incarcerated and uh, increases the chances that they will stay out of prison once they leave. Has a great benefit also to the families and loved ones 
of incarcerated people, and it makes it more likely that they'll have a stronger and more supportive relationship both during and after incarcerated incarceration just by making phone calls affordable. This is just one part of the flow of justice and righteousness. When there are actions for justice and righteousness, big or small, the impact of that flows. It touches other people. We don't know exactly. We don't always know. We don't always have the studies to show exactly how that works. But justice is like a river. People can organize and legislate to make our systems better. And again, if you want to be encouraged, read about the history of the Buena Vista Mobile Home Park. And you won't even know all of the things that people have done. Donations here, little action here, little awareness there. But justice has begun to flow at the Buena Vista Mobile Home Park. In fact, out of our involvement, our little part of it, this community, a nonprofit has risen up. We've done a lot of rent relief and um, uh, children's mental health care camps and so many other things. There is a flow of justice, righteousness, and goodness, but you'll only know about it if you learn. Dr. King says that the arc of the moral universe is slow, but it bends toward justice. And I would say, that's a little arrogant, I realize that I'm going to better Dr. King's comment. But I would say, from the scripture here today, it doesn't just bend, it ends in a place of justice. We can have hope to act, even though sometimes this world just feels like a pit. Because we know that God's heart is for justice and righteousness. And God prevails. God wins. His kingdom is our ultimate destination. And we will see justice in the end. The only variable, the only question, is are we going to be a part of it? Are we going to hold on to Jesus and say, okay, lead me? Or are we going to be among those who are numb? Among those who have fallen into religious self-deception? Among those who have gotten into a bad place with God? Amos, saying to, Amos is saying to the people of Israel, you guys are in a bad place. And they are. They're in a really bad place. And Amos, God, and the voice of God, is trying to shake them. Shake them up and say, stop being blind. Stop just doing your stuff. Stop being out of touch and stop being so separated from the heart of God. And I just want to ask, how did they get there? How did these people who have the covenant, who have the law, who have this history of relationship with God, how did they get to the place where they're just missing out on God so much? Well, in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. I suggest three things that have led to complacency for them. The definition of complacency is self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness 
of actual dangers and deficiencies. Complacency. Complacent. Why? Firstly, because of presumption. It says they are complacent in Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. And the people of Jerusalem are mightily tempted to go, you know, we have the temple. You know, it's in our town. I see it. It's right there. It's in the midst of us. We live on a mountain. We're safe no matter what. When he mentions Mount Samaria, Mount Samaria is a very steep, high mountain. There are wind, you have to go up winding roads to go up to Mount Samaria, and they have fortifications along the way. It's known as a strong mountain. And so the people are like, hey, I live on Mount Samaria. Or, you know, like, I am not in danger. I live in the Silicon Valley. It's a very economically strong place. What could happen to me? Or I'm from a Christian family, you know, and my parents are very strong believers. What could happen to me? It's almost like I don't have to do anything about my faith. Or maybe even like, you know what? I don't have to worry about the oppressed. I am the oppressed. I'm the victim here. I can't be responsible for helping other people. But presumption is is an idea that is taken to be true and often used as a basis for other ideas, even though it is not known for certain. Presumption. Another reason why people can be complacent is procrastination. Verse 3 says, you put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. Do you ever put anything off? I'm enjoying my life right now. I'll get to that one day, maybe after the kids are out of the house. Let me postpone responding to God in the ways I feel him saying, but let me just postpone that for a little bit. But I just want to say, The time is short, and we never know exactly what twists and turns our lives are going to take, right? And so it is not good to procrastinate on the Lord. It is not good to procrastinate spiritual things. I think I've shared this story before with you, but I'm going to say it again because it's such a quintessential example in my life. When I was in my early 20s, And um, certain parents in my life were very nervous that I was not going to get married. So they were like faxing my picture to other Korean pastors across the country. (laughs) One time I came home and my mother said, oh, you have to get dressed nicely tonight. Why? Oh, you have a blind date. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my mother has set me up on a blind date. That's so lame. So I go to Applebee's, sit down, you know, it's like, you know, elder so-and-so's cousin or something. I, you know, I meet him, and it's a Korean guy, and he is hot. (laughs) And I was like, oh. So he sit down, and he loves the Lord, you know, has gone to biz school, really bright person, charismatic and I was like, wow, maybe obeying your parents, is there something to that? <laughs> um, you know, and at that time, I was working in college ministry, and um, he was into college ministry. I'm like, whoa. 
So as we got to talking, though, I was like, well, what are your plans? Are, are you going to work for a campus ministry organization or something like that? And he's like, I would like to at some point. I would like to become a missionary or be on mission, but I'm going to make a couple million dollars first, make sure everything is okay, you know, make my wealth, then I'm going to give myself to the Lord. And I remember thinking, oh, that's so attractive, but I, I think maybe not biblical. <laughs> and I was like, something in me was like, I think maybe you're, if you have a conviction and a love for something, I think you're supposed to do something about it. I mean, you can always, but I think you're not supposed to procrastinate God. <laughs> and um, we did not hang out after then, and I... I decided to wait for maybe a tall, white, male, a, a bald person that God might send into my life who really wanted to respond to God in the now. Hot. Hot. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes... <laughs> sometimes we're complacent because of procrastination. Thirdly, sometimes we're complacent because of self-indulgence. Verse 4 says, You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. This is not to say that celebration is a bad thing. This past summer, we talked all about celebration and hospitality. And sometimes food is love and food is celebration. But what they're talking about here is that there's something wrong. There's something that God is calling them to pay attention to. And they're like, no thanks. Lotions. (laughs) Fatted lambs. They are inappropriately focusing on their own self-indulgence. I remember years ago, I was in this church, and I was just a member, and I was on the greeting team. Someone else who was on the greeting team, suddenly they weren't on the greeting team. And, you know, people change their volunteer roles. That's cool. But I was like, hey, we miss you on the greeting team. And this person said, I just really feel like I'm supposed to focus on myself for a while. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, But I realized this person never got back on the helping out with others team. They just spent many years focusing on themselves. But that does not bring life, right? Self-indulgence does not bring spiritual life. And God was saying to these people at this time, you're not grieving over what's wrong. You're not seeing what is needed. You're not paying attention to my heart at this time. So what does complacency lead to? Chapter 6, verse 11 says, For the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Know that all the powerful things that feel like solid, I could stand on, owning a home in Mountain View, working for Meta, or living in such and such place. I'm, a, I'm 
doing great research at Stanford University. All these things, there's nothing inherently wrong with them at all. At all. But no, we should constantly know that these things are not solid, right? They can be smashed by the Lord at any time. Therefore, we should not put our confidence in them. They should not be our treasure. And I'm just saying those things because those are some of the obvious things. But, you know, we're very creative in all the things that we're tempted to put our confidence in. This job, my, my child doing this with their future, whatever it is. Know that those things could crumble at any time. These things are not lasting. The great and small houses can be smashed to pieces. And the only thing lasting is the kingdom of God. The only thing lasting is the kingdom of God. And we have to be responsible and we involved and we all have to live where we live and do things that, to contribute to our society. But as we do, we ought to not over-focus on them, give our whole hearts to them, because we know All of these things could crumble at any time. Even uh, the Roman Empire rose and fell 450 years is just a blip to God. All the things that seem so strong, so eternal, are but a blip to God. Therefore, our hearts should be given over to God. Because he wants to give us his heart. Are you open to that? God wants to give you his heart and the things that he cares about. What has God been inviting you to seek? What are you tempted to be complacent about? Do you, in some way or another, Are you being invited to love and be more concerned for the poor and those who are caught in systems of injustice? How is God inviting you to care more about your community? And might you be given away, being invited to to let justice roll like a stream or a river? Are there ways? Let us pray the Holy Spirit would flow in us and through us. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I ask that you would flow in us. Lord, the things that you've spoken to us through your word this morning, I ask that you would... um, Move it forward by the Holy Spirit. Give us clarity and focus and conviction about how we as individuals and as a community ought to respond so that we could have more of your heart, Lord. I know you've already been speaking, and I pray that you would help us not to be complacent. Worship team, would you come on?